Through God's wisdom, we find truth. The Lord is our God, we are God's people. God's word lives within us, for it is written on our hearts. May the living word lead us and guide us this day as we worship him. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, the scripture tells us that your words are sweet to the taste, sweeter than honey. So let them be that for us today. Give us ears to hear, for we marvel at your instruction. Train us in righteousness, grant us patience and persistence, and equip us for every good work that you call us to do. Inspire our faith and give us voices to proclaim your message. Guide our feet, keep us from every false way, for you alone speak the words of life. So we love you, we serve you this day, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're continuing today um, this series that we've been doing through the summer months, it's called Changed, and today we're going to be talking about another story in Luke's gospel. It's a story about a young entrepreneur who one day came to see Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we confess that our lives are <clears throat> a mixture of faith and doubt. Uh, you, you brought us a long way. Uh, you bless us abundantly. But there are times when we have felt abandoned. Uh, we've doubted your word. We've denied your love. We've violated the promises we've made to you. So lift us up today as we look at how your life in us changes us. Fill us with vision. Fill us with wisdom and hope and confront us with your truth again so that we might be changed. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last week I had the privilege of um, preaching at our St. John's campus. And uh, my wife Jan and our daughter and her three kids uh, joined me there for worship last week. And I had preached my usual great sermon, you know, and... And I, Monday morning, uh, Monday, we, uh, the kids were over at our house and for lunch, and we were sitting around the, uh, the lunch table, and our oldest granddaughter, who's 11, said, Papa, that wasn't your best sermon. <laughs> See, Adam, uh, you know, kids have the way of telling truth in a different way, and um, I said, well, you know, can't be true at all, but... <laughs> Then she went on to expand a little bit on why that wasn't my... So I'm, I'm just promising you this message today is not last week's. Um, so you're getting a different one. So uh, hopefully, um, and if you feel that way at the end of the service, don't tell me. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> so today we're in the middle of this uh, series, the teaching series for the summer called Changed. And today we're looking at the one thing that we lack. And it's a story from Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Some of you may remember uh, the name uh, Lee Atwater. If you follow American politics, especially the politics of the 1980s, then you certainly know who he is. Uh, Lee Atwater is the man who almost single-handedly engineered the election of George H.W. Bush as the President of the United States in 1988. This is not simply an opinion. It is the considered judgment of both Republicans and Democrats. He was the man who made Willie Horton a household name. He's the man who told the senior George Bush, you can talk all you want about kinder and gentler, and, uh, but it's not going to get you any votes. Lee Atwater is remembered as the modern-day father of negative campaigning. 
No, he isn't the person who started it, but I think he's the one who popularized it in the last few decades. He's the man uh, who made it most successful on a national scale. I think it's fair to say that Lee Atwater fully earned his reputation as the bad boy of American politics. To his opponents, he was mean-spirited, he was arrogant, he was an egotist, and even his friends uh, considered him something of a lovable scoundrel. By his own admission, he had two goals in life. One was to be a successful manager of a presidential campaign. And the second was to be the leader of a national political party, and he accomplished both by the time he was 39 years old. Having successfully managed the candidacy of George H.W. Bush in 1988, he reached his second goal when the president-elect named him the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And certainly, Lee Atwater is one of the most respected and most feared politicians or operatives in America at that time. At the age of 39, he was on top of the world. And then out of nowhere, he developed a massive brain tumor. He was treated, and instead of getting better, he got worse. And then he got worse, and worse yet. In February of that year, Life magazine published an article in which he evaluated his life in, in, in light of his terminal illness. And these are the words of Lee Atwater himself. He said, the 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, and prestige. I know. I acquired more wealth, more power, and more prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time now with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with a friend? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it is a truth that the country, caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay, can learn on my dime. I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be made to speak to this spiritual vacuum which is at the heart of American society. It is a tumor of our soul. Lee Atwater was someone who had it all. And when he got it all, he discovered that it wasn't enough. But there's more. Time Magazine had a cover in 1991 that said, um, the, uh, the simple life, rejecting the rat race, Americans get back to basics. And the cover story was subtitled, Goodbye to having it all. Tired of trendiness and materialism, Americans are rediscovering the joys of home life, of basic values, and things that last. After some years of gaudy dreams and godless consumerism, many Americans were starting in the 90s to trade down. They wanted to reduce their attachments to status symbols, to fast-track careers, to great expectations of having it all. Upscale was out, downscale was in. Yuppies were becoming an ancient civilization. Flaunting money was considered gauche. If you had it, you were were encouraged to either keep it to yourself or give it away. Sounds a lot like some values that we hear today, don't they? But these words were penned in the early 1990s. 
America toward the end of the last century was the story of an entire generation that had been made to believe that the real key to life is how much you can get and how fast you can get it. It was the story of a generation gone bankrupt, a generation that discovered that having it all was not enough. Somewhere I picked up a cartoon that shows a man driving in his car, and he's going down the expressway, and it says, at 20, I couldn't wait to get on the road. At 30, I learned how to go from zero to 60 in eight seconds. At 40, I found out that I'd been holding the map upside down. And at 50, I discovered that I had the wrong map altogether. Well, you know what? That's the story of my generation, the baby boomer generation. We were told, get up early, work hard, climb to the top, step on people if you have to, look out for number one, do it now. And then when we got going about 150 miles an hour, we found out to our utter dismay that we had a map that was upside down. What we were looking for was in exactly the opposite direction. Having it all is not enough. Let me tell you another story. It's about a young man who had big dreams about his future. He was 20, 25, maybe 30 years old. He was aggressive. He was a go-getter, a young man on the way to the top. He was someone who had made his money in real estate, which is, I guess is a good way to make money if you know what you're doing. Probably a good way to lose it if you don't. But he knew what he was doing. He had limited partnerships, condos, urban lofts, buy you know, low, sell high, turn swampland into high-rise apartments. He made a lot of money at a very young age. He had risen to the top of his corporation, but he felt completely empty inside. One day, this young man went to see a guy who was a carpenter, a man from Galilee named Jesus. This young man at the top of his game with all the money he could ever want was a man who had it all, he felt, but he felt empty. He felt unfulfilled, and he went to Jesus with a question, and he said, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the conversation that he had with Jesus of Nazareth evidently made a tremendous impact on the early church because it is represented in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let me tell you the story in a little different way and paraphrase it. A young entrepreneur came up to a wealthy investor and asked him, what must I do to achieve lifelong happiness? And the investor replied, what, why do you ask me about happiness? The only thing worth living for in life is financial security. So obey the market commandments. Which ones, the young entrepreneur asked. Don't buy in a bull market, always borrow more than you invest, and diversify, the investor replied. All these things I have done, the aspiring billionaire responded, what do I still lack? And then Jesus told this young man in verse 22 of our text this morning, there's still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. See, there's a great deal to admire about this young man. I think he was probably a person of pretty good moral character. We can admire his determination to have obeyed the law of God to the best of his ability. I think we also might admire his courage in coming to Jesus, his humility in, meeting, uh, in, in, in admitting his need. 
And I certainly think we would admire him for his aggressiveness, for it was his aggressiveness that had gotten him where he was in life. He asked the right question for the right reason, and he comes to the right person, and he's saying, Lord, tell me what you want me to do, and if you tell me, I'll do it. He was like a lot of Jewish people in the first century who believed that after they had obeyed all of God's laws, all of the commandments of God, there was still one thing out there, one great and good and righteous and virtuous thing that they needed to do. And if they could only discover what that was, if they could only do it, it would guarantee them entrance into heaven. And this young man, sensing something that was lacking in his life, comes to Jesus wanting to know what's that one thing that he still needs to do which will gain him entrance into heaven. Well, the young man asking the question was wrong on two counts. One, he was wrong to think that there was something he could do to gain entrance to heaven. And two, he was wrong to think he could do it if he only knew it. So he comes to Jesus with this crucial question, and Jesus gives him an answer which has confused people for generations. The question seems simple enough, what should I do to inherit eternal life? But when you read the story and when you read what Jesus says back to him, it appears that either Jesus didn't understand the question, or Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question, or Jesus just doesn't want to give him a straight answer. And when you read the question and read the answer, it doesn't seem as if the question and the answer really go together. Verse 18 gives us the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 19 gives us Jesus' answer. Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Now that statement, besides being confusing and seemingly irrelevant, has confused people into thinking that Jesus might mean something like, you know, God is good, you shouldn't call me good because I'm really not God. But as a matter of fact, that's precisely the reverse of what Jesus means to say. Jesus is talking, uh, he's actually taking the word good very literally. The young man had called him good teacher. He says it as a way of being respectful, but he wasn't thinking of the meaning, the true meaning of the word. Jesus understands that all true goodness comes from God. He's saying, when you call me good, do you really know what you're saying? If I'm good in the ultimate sense, it's because I'm not merely a good person. I'm God in human flesh. And so when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's asking the question, do you really know who you're talking to? Do you really know what you're saying? And before the young man can even make an answer to that point, Jesus plunges right on and he says, but to answer your question, you know the commandments. He means the Ten Commandments. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother. That's another part of the story, though, that seems a bit irrelevant to us. This fellow wants to know how to get into heaven, and in response, Jesus first engages him in what appears to be an abstract theological discussion, and he brings up, of all things, the Ten Commandments. So what's really going on here? Well, this fellow came to, who came to Jesus, this first century yuppie, what he wanted was what so many people today want. He wanted a list. Just give me a list of the things that I need to do to make sure I can go to heaven. Give me a list, and I'll check each one of them off. Do this, do this, and when I get to the bottom of the list, then I will know 
that I'm going to heaven. So Jesus says, fine, if you want a list, I'll give you a list. Here's my list. It's called the Ten Commandments. Why don't you just try keeping those for a while? Now notice what, that Jesus does not quote from the first part of the Ten Commandments. He quotes only from the second part. You remember, there are two parts. The first part of the Ten Commandments is vertical. The first four commandments, you must not have any other gods before me, no idols, don't take my name in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy. Those commandments deal with our relationship with God. The other six commandments are horizontal, dealing with our relationship to our fellow human beings. You must not murder, commit adultery, steal, testify falsely, covet your neighbor's house or wife, and so on. Jesus doesn't quote from the first part at all. He quotes from the second part because that's where this man had a problem. And he says, look, you want a list? Here's my list. Keep the Ten Commandments. If you keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, when you get to the end, you'll be okay. Now look what this fellow says. He says, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now that might have been the sincerest statement in the world, but it's possible for us to be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And this poor fellow was sincerely wrong. If anyone says, I have perfectly kept all the Ten Commandments from the beginning of my life till now, you automatically know two things about that person. One, they don't know anything about the real meaning of the Ten Commandments. And two, they really don't know anything about themselves. They're living a lie. And that brings us back to the deeper meaning of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus explains more fully in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. When the Bible says you must not murder, it's not just talking about taking a gun and putting it to somebody's head. Jesus said if you have an angry thought against another person, if you're bitter against that person, just the thought itself is murder in your mind. So even though you are smiling on the outside, on the inside, you've broken the sixth commandment because you're filled with hatred and bitterness. Remember what Jesus said about adultery. Even, look to an, even looking at another person to lust after them is breaking the commandment against adultery, even if you never jump into bed with somebody else. You can break the seventh commandment in your mind while being pure on the outside. Jesus is saying to this young man, man, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're not as good as you think you are. And this fellow says in verse 21, I've carefully obeyed all these commandments since I was young. To the best of my ability, Jesus, I've not broken any of them. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, okay, you think you're so good, you're not as good as you think you are. Verse 22, there is still one thing you haven't done. Now, that statement got this young man's attention because if there's anything a go-getter likes, it's a challenge. What do you mean? I've got money, I've got position, I'm well-respected, I'm honest, I'm hardworking, I keep the commandments, Jesus said, but there's still one thing, one thing you haven't done. That must have just floored this young entrepreneur. It's sort of like saying to a boxer, you're the greatest 14-round boxer in the world. Unfortunately, if you know anything about boxing, boxing matches are 15 rounds. And if you keep getting knocked out in the 15th round, maybe you're not all that great. It's like saying to an artist, you know, you're really good at what you do, except you don't work very well with blue colors. You know, see, when it comes to going to heaven, it's not what we've got that counts, it's what we lack. Do we understand that? When we're talking about going to heaven, it's not what we've got, it's what we lack. 
And Jesus is saying, you think you're so hot, you think you've got life all together, there's still one thing you haven't done. What do you think that is? Jesus says something to him that we would never say to somebody we are trying to lead to Christ. I'll bet you've never said what Jesus said here to someone you were trying to share your faith with. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. Go sell all of your possessions. Give your money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Highlight those verbs, sell, give, come, follow. How would you like it if we made that a requirement for church membership? Jesus said to this fellow, if you want to go to heaven, this is what you've got to do. Sell, give, come, follow. If we said that here at Redeemer, we'd empty out this church pretty fast, I think. Let's be honest, those are scary words. But here's a fact. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever said that to anybody as a condition of eternal life. This is the only time in the New Testament that anybody was told to go sell all that they had, give it to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. But why did Jesus say it to this guy? Because that's where this young man had a problem. This young man who looked so good on the outside, this first century entrepreneur, uh, on the inside was totally controlled by the love of money and what money could do for him. Jesus was saying to this fine-looking, upstanding, good young citizen, if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to break the hold that money has on your life. And for this man, money was not just an object. It wasn't just a thing. Money had become his God, and Jesus knew it, and he is touching this man at the point of his need. He's saying you're going to have to give up your idolatry of money before you can be a disciple. That principle is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And because it is true today, we need to say it again in this church and to every congregation in the, con- in the culture of 2019. We obsess about money. We love money. We worship the things that money can buy us. We are trying so desperately to be successful, to get to the top of the ladder, to have what everybody else has. And the principle is true. We cannot love money and be Jesus' disciple. We just can't. He set the rules down 2,000 years ago. It's just the way it is. Jesus understands the hold that money has on our life. You know what... the Maybe the most hopeful thing in the story is to me, in verse 23, Luke tells us, when the man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. The words of Jesus hit home to him. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. By the way, I believe this is the only case in the New Testament where somebody came to Jesus, and Jesus gave them the truth and let them leave and walk away. The man just walked away, sorrowful and sad. Jesus didn't go after him and say, hey, wait, now just a minute. Let me change the rules for you, you know? I'll lower the, I'll lower the price. Let me make a deal with you because you have a lot. I'll make a better deal with you because you, I want you to be my follower. Jesus just told him the truth and let him walk away. The world says it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor just as long as you have money. And Jesus knows the way we are. 
And that's why he says in verses 24 and 25 how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Because rich people, people like us, we trust in money. We trust in what we have. We trust in material things. We trust in our riches. It's easy or for a poor person to get saved because a poor person says, hey, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, I'm sunk. But a rich person says, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, it's okay. I still have my pension. I still have my stocks and bonds and some options and my golden parachute. I've got my safety net. And if Jesus doesn't come through, it doesn't really matter too much because I'm pretty much taking care of things myself. It is nearly impossible, Jesus says, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples said in verse 26, then who in the, world can be, in the world can be saved? And the answer comes in verse 27, what is impossible for people is possible with God. The message of that statement being even rich people can be saved if they're willing to give up their trust in their riches. But that's the thing that makes many of us feel so secure, isn't it? Feeling control. And the message is, yes, we can be saved, but we've got to stop trusting in what we have and in what money can buy and start trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. It was Pascal, I think, who said, there is a God-shaped vacuum inside the heart of every person, and if you don't fill that vacuum with God, we will fill it with something else. And when we do we find out that you know this rich young man what this rich young man found out years ago we can have it all but still not be enough there's one thing that we lack what happened to Lee Atwater can happen to us i never finished that story did i let me tell you the end of the story lee atwater was labeled the meanest man in american politics cut down at the age of 40 by a terrible brain tumor he died on Good Friday, but listen to his words the November before he died. He said this, I have found Jesus Christ. It's that simple. He has made a difference in my life, and I am glad I found him while I still had time. The things that once counted in my life, power, fame, and glory, no longer have any meaning. I don't hate anybody anymore. For the first time in my life, I don't hate anybody I have found nothing but good feelings toward people. There's just no point in fighting and feuding. Let me offer uh, two conclusions as I close this message today. One, as long as we make money and the things that money can buy, uh, and that's the measure of our life, we're always going to feel empty and unfulfilled. And two, whenever we stop trusting in money and the things that money can buy and turn our life over to Jesus Christ, then and only then will that internal vacuum, that heart vacuum be satisfied. And if we need to be convinced of this principle, just turn on the television set and watch celebrities and politicians and athletes and business people and others and then ask yourself, what is it that many of them ultimately value? What motivates them? Is it money? Is it power? Is it notoriety? And the question for you today is, what is the one thing that you lack today? God offers to us right now the one thing we need 
and it's ours just for the asking. If you have discovered that having it all is not enough, then please, please consider something that money can't buy. Would you like a life transforming relationship with Jesus Christ? It's ours for the asking. All we have to do is open our heart to him, and he will come in. Pray with me, will you? God, you have promised bread for the hungry and rest for the weary. May those who hunger today for you be filled with the bread of life. And may the weary find the rest that only Jesus can give. Forgive us for loving money and all that it can do for us so much that we have less and less room for you in our life. Grant that we might realize today our deepest need so that you can provide for us the one thing that we lack. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.